Hi, Marcus. Do you want to go and watch the Servet FC Grasshoppers game tonight? It's a match between the two historically most successful clubs in Switzerland. It'll be a great atmosphere. Servet are in top form. They won their last match against Grasshoppers 2-1, and I think they're up for another big game tonight. Did you know that the decisive goal for Servet was scored by Miroslav Stefanovic in that game? Miroslav is a national player for Bosnia and Herzegovina, and he's played for clubs in Bosnia, but also in Greece, Hungary, Spain, and now in Switzerland. Wow, Marcus, that's impressive football knowledge. I just checked. Grasshoppers and Servet are not playing tonight. I think you looked at last year's calendar of matches. And I checked the final score was 3-1 to Servet, not 2-1 as you said. Mm. Looks like I slipped up. Did you know that GC, the Grasshopper Zurich Club, were the first Swiss sports club to go public in May 2005? In April two years ago, the Hong Kong-based Champion Union Holding acquired 90% of Grasshopper shares. Yeah, that's fascinating, Marcus. But as our editor Claudia would say, what does this have to do with trade? What we've just discussed is trade and services. Not only are there different categories of services in football, they can also be supplied internationally in different ways. So again, we are talking about trade. Interesting. Well, before we go any further, I'm going to have to substitute you. What? I've been playing well this podcast season. This is the fourth episode and I've been on the pitch the whole time. Michael, football is unsentimental. Your performance dipped badly at the start of this episode. You lost the ball about Grasshopper Club Zurich. I think I need to bring Antonia in, a colleague who really knows about trade and services. Antonia, can you please explain what this episode is about? Happy to do so, Claudia. Welcome to the Football Value Chain episode in which we discuss players. This is the episode where I get to talk about trading services. And this is where the real action is in the football global value chain. And excuse the pun, we've netted some big interviews for you. Stay with us as we talk you through the world of transfers of football players and ownership of football clubs. The ins and outs of how footballers move across borders and how this process works at a regulatory level. We'll also look at foreign investment in football clubs and compare the different regimes from a WTO rules perspective. So let's talk trade. Football is a local game and a global product. To get this episode underway, we'll speak to someone deeply involved in the local game here in Geneva and who has global experience playing soccer at the very highest level. Severet FC's director of football, Philippe Senderos. Philippe had a glittering career at international level and earned 57 caps for Switzerland. He played for Arsenal, Milan, several other clubs in England, Spain, Scotland, Switzerland and even the US. Philippe, when people think of footballers, they tend to focus on the most famous ones, the players who are so instantly recognizable that we can identify them just by their shadow, like Messi, Ronaldinho, those players. The reality of most professional footballers, though, is quite different. And there aren't many professions in which you can be cheered and booed by thousands of people just for doing your job. What can you tell us about the day-to-day -day life of professional footballers? Well, first, we have to say we are privileged uh, as professional football players because we live from our passion. Uh, this is the, what everyone wants to, to become uh, when they grow up. 
is to be able to live from something you, that you love to do. And we all love to play football. If not, we wouldn't be uh, on the pitches every single day. This is the, the first thing. And then obviously people see the tip of the iceberg when they see the, the big players uh, staying at clubs for many, many years. And, and again, this is a very, very small percentage of, uh, of what a life of a professional football player is. I'm not complaining, but <laughs> there is a very, very small amount who, who can live and live very well. Uh, the rest are trying to uh, go from place to place and, and continue to, to play football and have fantastic careers. We have a very good academy and from thousands of these players, maybe one becomes uh, professional football players. And it's important that all the kids uh, realize that as well. They all have a dream, but uh, a very, very small percentage become uh, the ones that we see on TV. Then the life of a, a football player, well, it's um, training every day and the training session that lasts one hour and a half or, or two hours is also a very small uh, part of, of what a daily life of a player is because the rest of the day uh, is part of the preparation for the weekend's game. Uh, people always see the, the weekend's game and see, okay, he wasn't good or he wasn't well, but all the preparation during the week is what uh, takes us to this game. So um, it's an entertaining uh, life, I have to say. We are judged uh, ourselves on a daily basis, but uh, judged every weekend or every game um, day by, by millions of people. And you have to accept that it comes with the, the job. Let's talk about the mobility nowadays of footballers. You joined Arsenal at age 18, coming from Servette. And as a professional, you played for 11 clubs across six different uh, leagues. Is that an unusual career path in today's football? Would a professional footballer expect to move between countries during his or her footballing career? Yeah, it's very possible. And uh, it's uh, also a career choice uh, at certain times to, to decide to move uh, from one country to another. And it's also down to opportunities. I had opportunities to go and live uh, in different countries and play for fantastic clubs. I did ask myself, is it the right thing to do? I discussed with my, my family, my entourage, and, and we decided to go for it. The time that you spend uh, adapting to a country is also part of the job. And when you don't speak the language, is also a little barrier. I'm lucky to be from Geneva, from Switzerland, where we tend to speak uh, different languages, and it does help to adapt to new countries. So uh, it's not unusual for a player to play in, in different countries. But uh, it's not easy either. The market for footballers has become global. And since its origin, Servette has been a club open to the world. Can you give us some examples from your own experience as director of football about how global the recruitment of footballers has become? It's very global, I have to say. Uh, we receive calls and we, we follow uh, a number of leagues with players coming from uh, loads of countries. We have to say in our recruitment, we tend to look first at what we have locally. And uh, that's why our academy is a big part of, uh, of what we do. So um, if we take the 20 player squad at the weekend, we have nine players. So that's just um, less than half of the players who are locally formed or who have done their academy at uh, Servette. And then we go look for it in different countries. So it is very global. We have players from lots of uh, different origins. And we need to uh, help them adapt and perform. How many different nationalities do you have currently at Servet? Um, I think about 10, 10 different nationalities. Yeah, we, oh. we tend to go for players who can adapt uh, quickly. It's usually uh, 
French-speaking uh, players, but we do have players from different uh, countries and it's important to have this uh, mixed uh, background because of where we are. Our city is an international city and people need to be relating to the players that they see on the pitch as well. I think you should speak to uh, Raffaele Poli next. He should be able to give you a global context of the situation. Raffaele is the expert on the movement of football players. He even wrote his PhD on the subject. Raffaele heads the Football Observatory at the International Center for Sports Studies in Neuchâtel. Hi, Raffaele. As fans, we sometimes have the impression that there are ever more international player transfers. Is that really the case when you look at the data? And what leagues attract the most foreign players? Football is a global game. International transfers are, uh, are on the increase uh, since uh, more than 20, 30 years. There is an, a global integration of the flows of footballers, but it depends still on the leagues. Of course, the most competitive leagues are based so far in Europe, mainly in England, Spain, Germany, Italy and France. About one player out of two comes from uh, abroad, but it can be more. The record is in Cyprus, up to 75% of minutes played are played by foreign players. And, uh, for example, in Spain, uh, they have a more local tradition. This figure is only about one third. But uh, generally speaking, these figures of uh, foreign players are uh, on the increase and they represent a, a big part of the squads. So which is the nationality that is most in demand for providing services as a football player? There is one global workforce, let's say, in football, are the Brazilians. There are more than 1,000 Brazilians playing as professionals abroad. Portugal, this is the main destination of Brazilians, but you find Brazilians a bit everywhere in the world. Then come the French. The French are the most represented in European countries, even above Brazil, since a few years. And the Argentinians, this year the third labor force for footballers abroad. And the Argentinians come to Europe, but also they are very present in South America, in Mexico, Chile, etc. And these three origins represent about one third of the total foreign players. Hey, let me interject for a second. I hear trade equivalents here. What Rafael is saying about Brazilians going mainly to Portugal and Argentinians moving to Spanish-speaking Latin American countries is related to something that in trade circles we call trade costs. Trade costs are all the factors that make selling a product abroad more expensive than selling it in the domestic market. Some trade costs are linked to geographic and cultural factors, such as languages, When two countries have a common language, they face lower trade costs. This explains why players may move more readily between countries that speak the same language. But I would argue that the high quality of European football is also influenced by the large number of African players in the game. Can you give us an idea of how Africa is ranked as an exporter of football players? Yes, Africa has the advantage of having a long-standing football tradition and a, a, a lot of young people there that really want to make a career in football. They give themselves uh, all the means and passion to achieve this goal, to go abroad and to make uh, a living out of football. There are a lot of Africans in Europe and also Asia, the US, they are a bit everywhere, but there are five countries that concentrate a bit the export of football players from Africa, which are Nigeria, Senegal, Ivory Coast, Ghana and Cameroon, and then Mali a bit uh, uh, below. 
what is the value that uh, transfer fees generate and how many transfers are taking place in a year? Yeah, the record fees expenditure was reached in 2019 with more than 10 billion euros. And the main fees are paid by the richest club who are based in Western Europe mainly. In total, there are about 50,000 transfer of professional players per year. Two thirds of them occur on a national level and one third on an international level. The transfer market is driven by a few very powerful clubs that can afford to spend up to 200 million. The record fee was 222 million euro for Neymar from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain. You have been studying player movement for a significant time now. What what are the key trends? What are the key changes that you observe over the last 10 to 15 years? First of all, I think the sums at stakes are really uh, much bigger now. The same player compared to 10 years ago, the same characteristics is paid three times more than 10 years ago. So it shows really that uh, this football economy has uh, developed and uh, the prices for footballers are much bigger. Because of that also, of course, there is greater speculation. There are more segmented trajectories, more actors involved to have a share of the pie uh, from the clubs, but also the players themselves, uh, the entourage, the agents, intermediaries, uh, all kinds of uh, private investors that also uh, invest in clubs or in players to uh, have uh, dividends. I have to interrupt again here. This is another trade parallel. The rapid growth of the transfer market, one third of which is international, mirrors a trend that we observe also with trading services. With the exception of the COVID years, services trade has been the fastest growing component of international trade in the last couple of decades, also thanks to football. Professional women's football is becoming ever more popular. What are the developments there that you are observing with regard to international transfers of professional female players? Uh, There are many clubs uh, who are traditionally active only on the men's game uh, that have created women's uh, football clubs. And this has really helped uh, to raise the level of professional leagues in more, uh, more countries. And as a consequence, the international transfer have also dramatically increased. The percentage of foreign players in the main leagues worldwide has almost doubled. It's still below the, the figures that we have at men's level, but now 40% of women in the main leagues come from abroad also. With a difference also in terms of origin, is not Brazil in that case who provides the most foreign players, but the US. US is really the dominant country in terms of women's football. Let's go back to trade and put players in a trade policy angle. Players are, of course, not commodities that can be traded across borders, but movement of players is relevant under international trade rules that apply to services trade. Can you explain what is meant by services trade? When you think of the notion of trade, you will probably always think of goods that are produced in one country and exported across a border to another country. This notion of cross-border trade exists also for services. Think, for example, of professional advice that is provided from one country to another over the telephone or in a Zoom call. Or think of the World Cup, which will be broadcasted from Qatar across the globe. So does that mean that services trade is broadly the same as goods trade, except that intangible services cross the border instead of physical products? 
Well, there is more to it. Trading services is defined also to cover three other situations. One of these situations is where consumers travel abroad to consume services. For example, the many spectators who will travel to Qatar in November to watch the World Cup games live. But services trade also takes place when a supplier establishes in a foreign market to supply services. Wait, let me stop you here. How does this relate to football? A football game is a service, and the clubs that are organizing the games are providing recreational services. To be precise, sports event organization services. In the WTO, this is defined as organization services of any kind of sports events, outdoor or indoor, for professional or amateurs. These include services provided by football clubs. There are many other sporting services, such as event promotion, facility operation or refereeing. As you know, in many countries, professional football clubs are owned or controlled by foreign entities. Where this is the case, under WTO definitions, they engage in trading services. And finally, a last way of supplying services is through the temporary movement of natural persons that go from their home country to another country with respect to the supply of a service. Ah, this is about the players, right? FIFA estimates that there are about 130,000 professional footballers when they survey their member associations in 2019. How are these covered by WTO rules? Well, some athletes like tennis players are potentially providing sporting services themselves. But football players are not really independent service suppliers. They are employed by their clubs, who are the actual service suppliers. Now, some WTO rules apply to employees of service suppliers, but only when their employer is foreign-owned. When it comes to football players, therefore, WTO rules are relevant only when the players move abroad to join a foreign-owned football club. This all comes back to the purpose of a trade agreement, a large part of which is to guarantee market access to foreign suppliers. The 2019 FIFA study found that 75% of the national football associations have rules on foreign players, typically upper limits on the number that could play or be included in a squad, and 31% of associations also had rules on homegrown players. To explain the legal side of player transfers, we turn to Carol Etter, a Swiss attorney at law with profound knowledge of all aspects of national and international sports law. Carol is also on the board of FC Basel, one of Switzerland's most successful clubs in recent history. Can you walk us through what happens when a football player is transferred from a legal perspective? What are the basic steps that have to be completed? In order to successfully conclude a transfer while a player is under a valid employment contract, the involvement and consent of three parties is necessary. One, the current club of the player. Two, the player himself and three, the player's prospective new club. These three parties must agree to the following elements. Firstly, the player's current club must agree with the player to the premature termination and dissolution of the existing employment contract. Only this enables the player to conclude an employment contract with his new club and to be registered with said new club. Then the current club needs to agree to the conclusion of a transfer agreement with the new club. And finally, the player's new club must agree to the conclusion of an employment contract with the player and, as mentioned, also to the conclusion of the transfer agreement with the player's current club. 
if any of the parties that does not give its consent to either element of this multi-party transaction, the transfer cannot be realized. The transfer fee is essentially paid for the current club to deregister a player so that the player then can be registered by the new club. But there are other payments in addition to the transfer fee, as stipulated in FIFA's regulations on the status and transfer of players, or in short, the RSTP. Once a transfer has been completed, the buying club has to pay training compensation and solidarity contribution to the clubs that have trained the player in accordance with the RSTP. Both serve a common purpose, which is to remunerate clubs for the investment made in training of the player. We have the solidarity contribution, which is paid throughout the career of the player. 5% shall be deducted from a transfer fee paid by the buying club, which shall be distributed to all the training clubs, which means all the clubs that the player has trained with between the age of 12 and 21. Training compensation is only paid once to a club, whereas solidarity contribution can be paid multiple times. In the past, in many European countries and all over the world, even when the contract of a player had expired, the club with whom they were under contract before was asking for a transfer fee when the player wanted to switch clubs. Another practice that was common at the time was that national football associations and also UEFA limited the participation of foreign players in their competition. At the time, only three foreign players could be in the squads for European club competitions. In 1990, Jean-Marc Bosman, a Belgian football player, argued that this was inconsistent with his rights under the treaty establishing the European community. Carol Etter tells us what happened. Jean-Marc Bosman was a player for the Belgian first division club RFC Liège. Once his contract had expired with the Belgian club, Mr. Bosman wanted to change teams and move to a French club. Even after expiration of the employment contracts, the old club's consent to a transfer was required, conditioned to the receipt of a transfer fee. Also, there was a restriction on the number of non-national players that created an obstacle for his transfer to France. In 1995, the European Court of Justice ruled that transfer fees at the end of a contract were incompatible with the right of free movements of persons guaranteed under what we now know as Article 45 of the treaty, and that restrictions on foreign players could not be applied in a way that constituted discrimination on grounds of nationality between citizens of EU member states. Free transfer at the end of contracts was thus established and quotas on foreigners could only apply to non-EU citizens. So, this all happened within the EU. But what is the significance of the ruling for the broader international transfer system? The post-Bosman effects were negotiations between UEFA, FIFA, the European Commission and other stakeholders. One of the major issues tackled and the principle was contractual stability. Hang on a minute. According to this, players would be able to transfer whenever they and the clubs concerned agree. Does that mean that the transfer windows are illegal? The European Court of Justice also considered that in principle such transfer windows would limit the freedom of movement of a person, but then applied the proportionality rule and also the specificity of sports and came to the conclusion that 
in order for a competition to being able to be uh, executed correctly and without disruption, it would be necessary that Sports Federation could implement transfer windows. It's really interesting to see the many layers of law that are relevant for the movement of players. It starts with national immigration and labor laws, regional agreements that regulate the movement of citizens within a region, and in some cases treat citizens from all member states alike. And also the FIFA regulations, which deal with player movements and also address how transfer fees and other contributions are shared among clubs. From a WTO's perspective, it seems to me that the GATS, the WTO Services Agreement, may in practice be relevant only in relatively few cases here, namely when a foreign-owned club wants to sign a foreign player, and in particular if there are specific commitments that allow for this. When it comes to market opening, each member has an individual schedule of commitments. This is a list of all the sectors in which foreign service suppliers are guaranteed opportunities to engage, and members can attach a range of conditions and limitations to such engagement. When it comes to club ownership, WTO rules are flexible, and governments are free to choose the ownership structure they wish to have for football clubs. In fact, Currently, only 44 out of 164 WTO members have made commitments to open their market to foreign involvement in sporting services. All WTO members without commitments remain free to impose any restrictions or simply not allow foreign involvement in the sector. And let us not forget that the WTO commitments represent only the minimum legal obligation that countries have undertaken. That means that countries cannot be more restrictive than their WTO schedule indicates. But in reality, many markets are much more open than schedules suggest. The openness to private foreign ownership of football clubs differs indeed widely across countries. And in some countries, this is a very sensitive topic. Why would private foreign ownership be so sensitive for football? I thought clubs would want to attract as much funding as possible to be able to buy the best players. Football is very deeply rooted in local communities. Remember the premise for the whole series is that football is a local game. Most of the first clubs were established by workers, students and also church communities. This was before football became a global product. In most countries, clubs originally were member associations, with members paying subscription fees. But with the movement to allow professional players and an increasing interest by people to watch their local teams, the demand for finance went beyond what could be afforded by member subscriptions alone. As a result, nowadays in some countries like England, football clubs are organized as joint stock companies, which allows them to issue shares which could pay a dividend. These companies also enjoy limited liability, meaning that if the business becomes insolvent, the shareholders are not liable for any of the debt. In Italy and England, clubs were traditionally owned by single private owners or families, whereas clubs in Germany and some clubs in Spain like Real Madrid or Barcelona are majority owned by their members or socios. Other leagues are studying the various models of club ownership and looking at the best formula to attract international investors. Brazil has recently updated its laws governing foreign ownership of football clubs. To learn what exactly is happening and why, we talked to José Francisco Mansour. He's a sports lawyer and one of the authors of the new Brazilian football corporate law, which passed in August 2021 and allows, for the first time, corporate entities to invest into football clubs. What are your long-term hopes and expectations from the change in the law? How do you think the 
members of clubs who will have potentially less say in the running of their clubs, how will they accept this law? The board of the clubs nowadays are composed by volunteers. So the first moment they had some concerns that they will lose some power. But in a second moment, they realized that in the way that the clubs were going, that was becoming something like impossible to pay the bills, to maintain a good team, to stay in the first division of the Brazilian football. The first reaction was, oh, I will lose power. But in second, some of these volunteers, members of the board, starting to see that the adoption of the company structure could be the salvation of their clubs. Francisco Mansur also told us that he believes that the increased investment in professional football in Brazil will allow the Brazilian clubs to hold on longer to their best local players before they move abroad, which in turn will increase the quality and interest in the Brazilian league. What is happening nowadays is that some youth players that had the opportunity to become idols in their clubs are leaving Brazilian football after eight or nine games. They don't construct a relation between the idol and the club, the fans. We lost fans to the European football. There are some kids in Brazil nowadays that come to clubs, to the beach, to parks, using T-shirts of European clubs. They don't are using anymore our club's T-shirts because they lost that link with the club that are made by the idol. So we need to stop being principally a seller of a commodity and start to sell the game, the attractions of the game. It seems a club's openness to foreign investment, which we call trading services in the WTO, has helped improve the quality of the game. This is one of the benefits the trade is expected to deliver. Another phenomenon that we observe with clubs is the advent of multi-club ownership. One of the commercial motivations of this model is for players to move between clubs in different jurisdictions, with the very best players arriving at the top club in the highest league. We spoke to Fernando Reutmann, a colleague of Raffaele Poli at the International Center of Sports Studies in Neuchâtel, about the rise of global sports groups. When we talk about multi-club ownership, right now, probably the City Football Group is the main example the owners of uh, Manchester City. They acquired Manchester City in 2008. And then from 2013 onwards, they started investing in clubs from around the world. Today, they own 11 clubs. And yes, they set kind of the scene for how uh, these multi-club ownership uh, structures work. We asked Fernando what the emergence of multi-club ownership meant for trading players. Players are transferred between clubs within the same group with the objective of give them more playing experience in uh, more competitive leagues and, as a result, increasing their value, which this can have a double objective because the player may end up being transferred to the, let's call it the main club. So the whole formation process is aimed at uh, getting the player ready to compete at the highest level. 
This notion of a conveyor belt with skills and experience being added through exposure to different clubs and leagues sounds very familiar from a trade perspective. It sounds very much like a global value chain. So I don't know how you feel after this episode, Marcus, but for me, it shows once more that football is a local game, even if it is also a global product, and the two are inseparably connected. Yes, I completely agree. Here in Geneva, the kids proudly wear the jerseys of Servette FC, which are garnet red, Grenat in French, the color of the club. Notre ville, notre club, our city, our club. They may also wear Arsenal or Benfica jerseys. In an international city like Geneva, the global and the local merge in multiple ways. For many of Geneva's foreign-born citizens, Servette is the second most important club in their lives after the club in their or their parents' countries of origin. I asked Philip Senderos, the sporting director of Sevet, where all the local kids in the football academy came from. From everywhere. Uh, it shows the multicultural style uh, of Geneva. And for us, it's a big strength to have people coming from different places. And we try to, you know, bring them together through football and through our academy. That's a, a very important factor and the important values that we try to uh, teach uh, the kids in our academy. This is such a great send-off from Philippe, and I don't mean this in the football sense. Let me sum up what we heard in this episode. We clarified how important services and services trade are for football. I am making the most of my goods and IP colleagues' absence here, in case you hadn't noticed. We explained that football matches are recreational services in WTO terminology and discussed how the WTO services agreement applies to trade in these services, specifically when it comes to the international transfers of footballers and the ownership of football clubs. Tune in next time when we discuss fans. Remember the empty stadiums when football restarted after the first COVID-19 lockdowns? Those sad days really showed just how critical the passion and enthusiasm of spectators is to the game. So join us next time when we explore how the fans' passion drives economic value in the football value chain and learn how this enthusiasm is monetized through different forms of intellectual property. See you next time on Let's Talk Trade. <laughs>